Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Melanie Hicks about what is missing in the workplace and how companies can better prepare their employees for success. Dr. Melanie Hicks, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with you today. We're going to be exploring what is missing in the workplace and how companies can better prepare their employees for success, particularly as we move into the future of work. As we get started, I wanted to share Melanie's bio with everybody. Dr. Melanie Hicks is a consultant, facilitator, and thought leader with more than two decades of experience in the areas of professional growth, career change, strategic planning, employee engagement, and organizational culture. She has worked with more than 100 clients over the course of her career, including small to mid-sized companies, educational institutions, nonprofit organizations, executives, and entrepreneurs. And I'm just scratching the surface in that introduction. Uh, you, you have done and accomplished so many wonderful things. Anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background or personal context before we dive on in? No, just um, I've been really privileged to to have a career that was very diverse, but kind of um, thread threaded together and now to run my own firm in pursuit and be able to share a lot of that experience that I gained through working with other organizations and a lot of clients over the years. Um, so really, I feel very blessed to be at this point and be able to have an impact on on companies. Yeah, it, it is a fun thing. It's a fun place, to, uh, space to be in, isn't it? Really and is. uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about your your educational background. Um, I consider myself a scholar practitioner. I'm a professor. I I more or less moonlight as a, a consultant and you know do that do that on the side. Um, and, but I really feel strongly about you know, both the traditional academic endeavor and doing research and teaching students, uh, but also, you know, application orientation is important to me. And I want to make sure that people can learn and understand what the research is saying in a way that will actually impact and improve lives and impact and improve organizations. So that's something I found a lot of meaning and value in. And so I I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. what's, What's your background? So I started my career in in public policy. I have a PhD in public policy and was working for um, in education policy in Florida at this at the um, state level, a little bit uh, dabbling in the federal level, but mainly state. And really had a great opportunity um, with the advocacy organization I worked for. They had a sister organization at, that was a five hundred one c three, and it had outlived its mission and really needed to to figure out if it needed to shut down to sunset or to be revamped. And so I I pitched the council of presidents, give me a year, see if I can turn this thing around into something that's valuable for you. And that experience was wonderful. I got the chance to meet with all at the time we were representing 28 campuses. The organization now represents a few more, but 
and really had a chance to meet with them and find out what are your needs? What, where are your pain points? What keeps you up at night? And it was really this very organic beginning to what would become a career in consulting and, and helping and impact. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, of course, I was just on a mission to figure out how to make this organization viable or alternatively to sunset it. Um, so that was really wonderful. And along the way, also, I was doing a lot of volunteer work with nonprofits. And so even though I was working in the education space, I um, had this strong nonprofit connection. And I was asked to go to a conference in Orlando as a speaker and train volunteers. Uh, of, it was actually Crime Stoppers of Florida to train volunteers on how to approach the legislature when they came up for their, you know, their volunteer day, their, their day at the Capitol. How do you, how, you know, how should you speak? What should they look for? How do they read bills? You know, basic things that, that, you know, a lot of really um, passionate volunteers, just they've never been in that space. And, and I, uh, so I went down, I thought it was going to be about 50 people. It ended up being about 1500. And uh, it was a huge, you know, a huge conference. I had no, I was, uh, you know, in my twenties, I did not ask all the appropriate questions to prep for it, but it went really, really well. And from that, I kept getting asked to do more and more of these things. And like I said, I had my own full-time job going on, but um, I, I forget what you just used as your term, but I call it loving side hustle. BK, you said moonlight, I think. Um, but so I, I took, I found it in pursuit as a loving side hustle to be able to do some of this work that I felt like I, if I can amplify other people's passion, organizations will have a greater impact. And if that's training somebody on how to speak to the legislature and then what evolved from that was doing some strategic legislative, legislative planning, which evolved into overarching strategic planning and, and on and on and kind of a list of services that over the years, um, I just was doing, like I said, as a kind of a loving side hustle or moonlight um, for a little while. And eventually I, I said, you know what, this is where my real passion is. And I'd had this wonderful opportunity to go onto a campus as an assistant provost and um, I'd worked, as I mentioned, in education policy, and then I got to be an education consultant for a national firm and all of these wonderful experiences. But what I really missed was this really hands-on um, direct contact with clients where I could look them in the face and say, where are your pain points and how can I help you, help you amplify that impact that you're making? And so that's why at the beginning of 2021, I relaunched In Pursuit as as a, a full-time, full-in, I have a business partner. She is wonderful and has a really wonderful complementary set of skills to me. So we um, kind of, you know, can attack it from a two-front two uh, two attack. So it was just um, really, I think, timing and, but, but uh, you know, a path that, that leads there. But going back to your, to your point about academics, one of the things as I was getting my PhD, right, the, my major professor uh, certainly expected me to go a traditional academic route and, to become a professor and to do research. And I got really wonderful exposure into grant writing, which became a huge piece of my career for a chapter. And, uh, you know, I, I, but I was in this, in this um, environment where I was right there in the same town as the state capital. And I got, and I was, I was at Florida State and I got this opportunity to watch policy happening in real life and then got the opportunity to work full time in it, uh, much to much to the dismay of my PhD program because they wanted me to be um, only a student. But I I kept going to school full time and I worked full time and I did not sleep. But what I came to realize is that the passion of being on the ground and making that connection between making that practical application connection between what are we studying, what are we learning, and then how is it really translated into the real world, and that that really became the the pivotal point where I stepped away from the traditional academic route 
um, and didn't go where a PhD can traditionally take you as a faculty member um, in a traditional sense. Now, I've been an adjunct faculty member for 20 years. I still am with, I've been with uh, five different universities over the, over the years. And uh, I've, you know, obviously been in university administration, but I, I really wanted that practical piece. I wanted to be able to say, I can trans, I can read this academic research and I can translate it to an audience that makes sense to me um, or that, so it will make sense to them rather. And, and that was really important um, because I don't, I don't know that there are enough, uh, there's so many really smart people doing really smart work and it doesn't necessarily get translated and utilized in the way that it could. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And you know, to be fair to you and uh, the, the the kind of the the pushback you got from your your advisors and your academic program, there are a lot of paths uh, when people go, you know, and get a PhD. And the traditional academic route is one of many paths, uh, especially for public policy. I would imagine that's not uncommon at all for people to go a different direction, similar to what you did. Right. Um, I, my PhD is in sociology and there were five people in my PhD cohort. Um, two of us went the traditional academic route and the rest, you know, went like uh, research analysts, public policy analysts, those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I think uh, some, sometimes our academic advisors in the university setting are a little bit uh, uh, narrow-minded in terms of w- where they want to see their people go. Right. Well, it's a classic incentive model, right? Like if you are an academic, a major professor, an academic advisor, you're incentivized to put out great, and the program, and, you know, PhD programs are incentivized to put out great people into the academic world in the best possible placement at the best possible university, right? They don't really get any credit for us, right? <laughs> they, they graduate maybe someone with a, a really high GPA, but they don't get the credit of, we placed this person at XYZ uh, institution. Um, you know, they you know, being placed in a advocacy organization doesn't give them the same street cred in the academic world. So I get it. It's just like everything. It's um, incentive, incentive aligned, right? But I, you know, she's been a wonderful mentor, I have to say, like, um, her name is Mary Guy. And she's been a wonderful mentor my whole career. And even though she was hoping that's not the initial path, once I made the decision, she was completely supportive and did everything to um, to kind of support my career over the years. So uh, no, yeah, no hard wonderful. feelings on that one. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, good. I appreciate that additional background. Um, Now let's launch into the rest of the conversation. Uh, You've done a lot of work in a lot of different types of organizations at different levels with different stakeholders, different leaders. What do you see as the major elements, the major gaps, uh, those things that are missing in the workplace today? You know, quite frankly, it is, uh, empathy and humanity. I mean, those seem a little, you know, previously, those might have seemed a little kind of woo-woo, so to speak, for especially in large organizations. But the truth is, organizations are human. They are made up of humans. They have human elements to them. Um, Organizational culture is all about team norms. And it's not just about the handbook that's written by HR, right? It's about what is the actual culture? What is the actual day-to-day interactions. And I've worked with, you know, organizations that had a great culture that want a better culture, which is always <laughs> phenomenal. And then I've worked with organizations that have really toxic, horrible cultures. And it's hard for them to even get to step one of normality because what happens in some of these really 
you know, really severely toxic is the group norms are all about survival instead of thriving, right? And so what do I have to do to keep my head above water? What do I have to do to stay out of the bullseye of, you know, either being yelled at or bullied or fired or, you know, and it, and instead of what are the innovations I can be doing for this organization? What are the, the impacts that I can be having on our customers or our constituents, if you're a nonprofit or an education institution, the students or the parents. And, and so you lose so much when you don't, when you start to see your people for their jobs or their roles or what they can, or their, you know, profit-making ability instead of their humanity. And one of the things I'm really passionate about doing when I speak to organizations is, is asking them the last time that they did like a spherical review of their employee. So yes, an employee can be hired. I do this with nonprofits with their board members as well. So maybe you join a board or you hire an employee and you hire them for this set of skills that they have. And that's wonderful. And they're very good at that. But if you get to know them, they may have a lot of other skills and interests and talents and passions that, that if you, if you step back and you look at them as a human and you think, how can I utilize all of that person, a spherical view of this person, they're going to be so much more uh, engaged. They're going to be so much more excited about the work. And quite honestly, those are the things that drive productivity, that drive revenue, that drive all of the things, you know, efficiencies or impact. And what we do is we pigeonhole people so often into this, I know them as this. And because I haven't taken the time to get to know them as their full self or to really understand and think about how can I use those things that maybe are outside of their job description at this moment, but how can I think about that for later? And, and I really think we miss people. And I, I've watched a number of organizations. There's one, um, a, a colleague of mine who recently left his position and he's, it's been four weeks since he put in his notice. So he's two weeks into his new job and his old company is calling him all these people that are like, we just learned you know, what happened? Why? And, and the biggest thing was he just didn't feel seen or heard. He didn't see a path for himself there outside of exactly what he was doing. He had a, a full gamut of experience that was not being utilized in the current role. And there was nowhere and no one paying attention to how might this help the organization. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations.
things that's so powerful about that at this precise moment in time is number one, we have a major labor shortage and it's not just at the low level. Um, the Denver airport just did a job fair where they expected to have 5,000 people. They had just over a hundred show up. Um, that included that is incredible. Oh my goodness. C-level high management positions, not a single application for any of their high level positions, not a single one. Um, the only people that showed up were for some of the, the lower level positions, which is great, but still not nearly enough. I mean, they wanted to hire more than even showed up in their door. Right. And, and I think that right now, the, the way to kind of mitigate some of the labor shortages we have is to really understand your people. If you know that someone is really, they're doing this one job, but they're really passionate about something else. Can someone else take part of their one job, you know, load so that you can utilize their really great talent in this other area where you're also lacking, right? How do you get creative about with people without, you know, not necessarily trying to say force people out of their comfort zone or give them two jobs by any means, but understanding them enough to know, you know what, they'll be really excited by that and they'll be more engaged. And they're not going to be looking for the, the job that pays them $10 an hour more because they're doing work they really love, right? So it's a recruitment and a retention strategy in that sense. Um, yeah, it really said, is. Can, you know, can I just say, I, I think, yeah. man, there, there have been lots of studies on the impact of pay uh, you know, on performance, innovation, intent to stay, organizational commitment, like all these, you know, good outcomes for organizations, anything that leaders would want. Um, and the reality is that pay isn't enough uh, to really attract and retain great people. You might, if you, if you're paying way above market, you might be able to get them in the door. Um, mm -hmm. But if it's a toxic culture, if you have jerk bosses, if they don't have an opportunity to grow in their career and to develop themselves and they don't have the resources they need to be successful, they're not going to stick around very long. Um, so people want to be pay paid fairly and equitably. And if they're not being paid fairly and equitably, that's going to cause a huge problem for sure. But mm -hmm. you pay people fairly and equitably and and then money kind of goes off the table. And at that point, it's it's these other things you're talking about. It's meaning and fulfillment and purpose in their work. It's the opportunity to work with uh, really interesting, engaging colleagues uh, who help amplify their impact. It's the ability to continue to learn and grow and develop themselves. All of these sorts of things, they're the, they're the elements that are going to drive whether or not someone chooses to stay long-term with the company. And the cost of turnover on companies is tremendous. And right now, amidst this great resignation and, and all the challenges in the labor market, companies simply cannot afford to allow their people to walk out the door because they're not getting anyone to replace them. To your right. point with the airport, and I've seen this in other organizations too, they, so many open positions <laughs> that just mm -hmm. cannot be filled, uh, even if they're willing to kind of dip into, you know, uh, lower skill level people who may not really be a great fit, they still can't fill the positions. And that's the reality of the labor market right now. If we can't uh, realize the reasons behind that and, and work to resolve them, then our companies, our, our, our organizations are, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. We're not going to be able to be competitive without good people uh, we might be able to survive in the short run, but in the long run, we're going to lose out. We're not going to innovate. We're not going to be, we're not going to provide uh, consistent value to the marketplace and we're going to lose out. Uh, other competitors are going to take over. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. I, I, I think the other piece too, you know, 
I said the word humanity a lot about like the humanness of the organization. The other thing is empathy. And I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic, right, is we all were in a sense, uh, kind of raw and vulnerable, right, at at a certain point, whether you lost your job and that was a raw and vulnerability to have to potentially, you know, look for unemployment for the first time. There was a lot of people who did first-time unemployment during this pandemic and they were, you know, they're like, I never thought I would have to. But um, there was, there's also a kind of a, a raw vulnerability about bringing a camera into your home every day where you have dogs and kids and maybe not a perfect backdrop and maybe, you know, a, a disruption or a garbage truck or construction or, you know, and we all took our empathy level up a bit. Um, I, well, I should say all good leaders. And I think most people in the workforce took our empathy up a bit because we were sort of forced into this, um, you know, kind of forced vulnerability. One of the things that I have fought throughout my career um, is that I'm just personally against is pageantry for the sake of pageantry, right? Like per- forcing, you know, particularly really smart people to create a lot of kind of unnecessary fluff instead of just having a real conversation. What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What do we need? You know, I would rather have a, a notepad and some bullet notes um, than a PowerPoint explaining it all to me, right? Because it's if it's real, if, if the material is real, because it's, you know, if you're giving a presentation to a group, of course, wonderful, you know, be professional, have nice graphics, all of these things. But when it's one-on-one or it's a small group of leaders that just need to like overcome a challenge, this idea of padding it with a lot of unnecessary pageantry has been kind of something I've rallied against for a long time. And I think one of, again, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is uh, some of that went away, not all of it, because you can still make a PowerPoint for Zoom, right? You can still have a lot of that. Um, but I, f- I find it to be an unnecessary waste of time when you could be thinking about the bigger picture things. If we have an issue, let's sit down, let's hash it out, let's get past it. And then let's think about all of the great things that we could be doing with that time rather than, you know, making sure the font matches on all your slides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amen to everything you're saying. I, I think we're in a very uh, close alignment <laughs> on, on, on these issues. Um, and so really this comes back to if we're, if we're missing humanity and we're missing uh, empathy in the workplace, um, not, not everywhere, like there are some right. really oh, great uh, leaders, some really great organizations, really great cultures, but there are also plenty of toxic cultures. There are plenty of toxic uh, leaders. There are uh, plenty of unhealthy and dysfunctional organizations. And uh, frankly, I think every organization has room for improvement, even if they are one of the best cultures out there. Mm-hmm. So the, then the question becomes, how do we improve? What can companies do to better prepare their employees for success in the future? I mean, success right now, of course, but also, you know, laying the groundwork and foundation for success, you know, a year from now, five years from now, et cetera. Well, I can tell you, there are a couple of different things that I kind of put out as a, an a la carte when I'm talking to companies, depending on their level of self-awareness and their level of comfort, like their, their own level of kind of vulnerability and how do you, how do you get them there? But I did my dissertation on a concept called psychological contract. And basically, yeah, you're shaking your head. I'm sure you probably uh, know this theory well. And ironically, although there are literally decades worth of studies, there's not a lot of practical application. And I find it to be extremely practical in the sense that 
um, whether it's onboarding, whether it's um, a, a merger acquisition or just a reorganization or just turbulent times, the idea that for, for those who aren't as familiar with it, the idea that what we bring into the workplace, whether that is at our hiring or from our role and our role gets changed, has a huge impact um, on, and there's all these elements around it, but it has a huge impact on our happiness in the workplace. And when we perceive something, even if it's never articulated by the organization or by your manager, but we perceive it to be the way that we the, you know, the, the norm that we have decided is a reason we, we go to that job or we take that job or we, or this is the way we do things. If those things are violated, that it's this, it's, you've created this psychological contract with your workplace. And when those things are violated, whether they're ever in writing or not, there's all these consequences from that, from passive aggressive to disengagement to, you know, ultimately turnover. Um, there's, you know, and sabotage, right? Like even being so angry, if you hold it in that, that you want to sabotage the work. And I, I truly believe that a first step for companies is to, I do a, a psychological contract assessment, right? And I really believe it's this first step to say, do you even know what your people, like how well do they match with what you think they think, right? Like if, how well do you know that your employees are walking in the door with the same norms and values and beliefs. And I don't mean beliefs in some, you know, larger spiritual sense. I mean, like, I believe that I have flex, I should have flex hours. Right. Um, and, and their manager says, well, I, I'm okay with that for like doctor's appointments, but I really want them eight to five or whatever. Right. Like how, where are the basic things that make up um, the workplace? How well do you really know what your employees expect and, and how that matches their particular supervisor or the organization as a whole. And that's a first step to just say, let's just see. Let's just look at where the mismatches are. And it begins the conversation of, okay, well, we can't meet you with everything that you think, but we, you know, there's a few things that you really are passionate about that we didn't even realize, and they're easy for us. So why don't we meet in the middle, right? That mitigation is kind of a first step, in, in my opinion. Um, and then the other you know, kind of a, a deeper thing as you start to build out strategy, which even if you have a strategic plan, you know, so many strategic plans gather dust anyway, because they're a check the box, but even those organizations who are pretty good at, at really diving in and, and making them meaningful, um, a lot has changed in the last two years. And, and so the chances, unless they've done one in the last two years in the midst of all this change, the chances that it really still matches um, is pretty small. And so I think that as you go about trying to um, create, I have, I have this thing I call the three E method of change, which the first E in this is excavate your attic. And this is the most important point to me, which is go back and don't shy away from talking about what has happened. What are those things you boxed up and shoved in a corner because they were not pretty? What are the things you boxed up and shoved in a corner because you just didn't have the, the capacity human-wise or resource-wise to, to deal with them at the time, but they're still good ideas that are boxed up in there? You know, dig it all out, lay it all out, and really, you know, don't just, so many strategic plans just look at the future and they say, they look at the present and the future and they don't ever look backwards. And there's so many lessons, particularly in a, in a real VUCA, you know, uh, work environment, um, uh, that we have had for, for, you know, going on two years. So I, I think that that, that point of, as you start to do your planning, cause everyone's going to have to, right. You're going to have to start making some, and we're getting to a point with the pandemic now where you can start feeling like some sense of new normal, at least, um, that you don't just 
push back those boxes that are sitting in your attic, that you really pull them out and look at them and look for the lessons from the good, bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah, yeah, very well said. Well, Melanie, it has just been a real pleasure talking with you. The time has flown by, you know, that, <laughs> that uh, I'm going to have to let you get on with your busy day here soon. But before we close for today, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your company, your team, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Sure. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Dr. Melanie Sue Hicks. Uh, I always throw in my middle name because it's relatively common on LinkedIn. Uh, our website uh, for the company is In Pursuit Research, so www.inpursuitresearch.org, not com.org. Um, uh, and, you know, feel free. You can contact us through the website. Uh, my email is Melanie at InPursuitResearch.org as well. So love to talk to people um, about this topic. Love talking about this. I really appreciate being on the show. And you know, as a final word, I would say, you know, just this is the time. There has never been a better time for organizations to get really authentic about who they are, where they've come from, and where they want to go. And remember that they're human. We all are human. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. It has been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Melanie and her team can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital. 
exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.